Have you ever heard the music of uh, Raymond Scott? He's the guy who uh, wrote all the Looney Tunes music. And when you listen to it performed, not on Looney Tunes, it's pretty amazing. You're welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. All right, then. Quick update from yesterday at the end of the show. I was talking about how a political memorabilia was found. A piece of political memorabilia was found in my brother's home. Uh, the piece is a button that says, President Quayle, now I know why I voted for Clinton, which is a really, really pathetic sentiment, seeing as how... President George H.W. Bush didn't die until 2018, so there was never going to be a President Quayle. But I said that I think that uh, President Quayle, I think the word Quayle here, the name Quayle, is misspelled. And I didn't want to jump to the conclusion that it was because I was afraid that I was just having a little bit of dyslexia. But in fact, it is misspelled. It's spelled Q-U-A-L-Y-E instead of Y-L-E, which makes this button even more ridiculous because Democrats made so much fun of Vice President Quayle misspelling potato. I hope you are not like me and that you did not fall for the Biden administration's cruel April Fool's Day joke of canceling student debt to a million who have defaulted on their loans. In reality, it's actually only six weeks of debt forgiveness, as in you don't have to pay until the end of September. I thought all my student loans were suddenly just canceled. Jesus, I hate... That's not canceling, that's delaying. Yes, uh, I hate April Fool's Day. I really hate April Fool's Day, especially when the Biden administration pulls one of those on me. I thought for sure I was done with student loan debt. Nope, I'm just going to continue not paying it. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. I mean, sure, you know the end of the world that is possible because of climate change. But there's another way that climate change can happen. Refuse to acknowledge any role our current economic structure plays in climate change. And for all the good press the Biden administration has been getting about addressing climate change, Team Biden is definitely not reconsidering the economics of constant growth as we burn through the world's resources on an ever-heating planet whose continued increased annual consumption of fossil fuels could only be slowed by a global pandemic, but the amount of carbon emissions that were reduced by the pandemic is still not the amount we need it to be lowered to every year in order to avoid the worst aspects of climate change. We actually have to emit less carbon than when a global pandemic is taking place. Luckily, we finally have a presidential administration that does believe in science. Well, it turns out they don't believe in all of the science. Sure, they believe when scientists tell them about increasing temperatures or rising sea levels. But when they explain that science finds the current state of constant growth capitalism is the root cause of global warming, suddenly that science only lands on deaf ears. And I take that back. They are not deaf ears. And I hate that term as it is clearly ableist. The ears of those in the Democratic Party who do not want to accept the science of economic growth destroying the planet, those ears are intentionally plugged by a belief that the market and some unknown future technology that the market will innovate, apparently, 
can solve all of our problems. Yes, Democrats, science is real for you, too. In a few minutes, we will have the return of writer Ben Ehrenreich, who posted the New Republic article, We're Hurtling Toward Global Suicide. Ben is the author of Desert Notebooks, A Roadmap to the End of Time, which we discussed with Ben on This Is Hell back in July of last year. This is Ben's fourth appearance on This Is Hell, and you can find all of our conversations with him at thisishell.com when you search on Aaron Reich. Ben's previous book, The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine, based on his reporting from the West Bank, was one of The Guardian's best books of 2016. In 2011, Ben was awarded a National Magazine Award for his Los Angeles Magazine article, The End, What Really Happens After You Die. Follow Ben on Twitter, at Ben Ehrenreich, and find out more about Ben at his website, benehrenreich.net. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's Question from Hell. We'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, at patreon.com slash thisishell. And I think we're going to tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week. I'm not sure if Alex got that to you or not, Richard. And if you are listening to the podcast, not the live stream, not the show on the radio. We will be playing a classic moment of truth with Jeff Dorgen, handpicked by Jeff, who returns next week. This week's classic moment is titled Selling Disaster Back to the Capitalists. Producing is Richard Norwood, spelling Alex as Alex is currently roaming the southwest suburbs or maybe the northwest suburbs in search of a vaccine. And nothing says how awful the distribution of the vaccine in the state of Illinois Uh, Nothing says it quite like Alex having to go all the way to Tinley Park to get a vaccine an hour away. And his wife has to go to Hoffman Estates, which is also an hour from Chicago. And conveniently, Tinley Park is southwest of the city. Hoffman Estates is northwest of the city. And they are actually an hour away from each other. So, Richard, we know Alex is driving all over the hellish suburbs to get vaccinated. Do you have any plans for your weekend? Any oh, plans at all? I'm hoping to do a little hiking. Oh, really? Where? Uh, I'm not, not quite sure yet, but I think uh, uh, Indiana Dunes is hmm. on the list. I really want to go to Medellin. Uh, down by Kankakee, where it's the old Illinois Armory, and they now have uh, prairie grasslands and a buffalo herd down there. I've always wanted to check out that place, and I love Starved Rock, and I uh, want to go over to uh, Kettle Moraine, too, but Indiana Dunes, that's fantastic. Warren Dunes is really nice, too. Boy, I really want to get outside. Jeez, this weekend my plans are to, well, it's supposed to be at least partly sunny and in the 60s, so I Hope to be hanging out on our newly cleaned and stained deck at my home, listening to the sounds of spring emanating from Warren Park, which our deck overlooks, and doing whatever my girlfriend tells me to do, because I'm going to do my very best to do absolutely nothing this weekend. Basically, all I have been doing since last Thursday when I got my first dose of the vaccine a week ago today is count the days until April 29th, which will be two weeks after my final dose, when I can finally, finally continue to wear a mask and socially distance, still avoid indoor crowds and wash my hands like a serial killer. God, normal is going to be great. More importantly, Richard, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what are you not paranoid about? What are you not paranoid enough about, correct? Yes. What are you not paranoid enough about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it 
to me at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast at the same place shortly after on tomorrow's Patreon podcast. Listeners are enjoying This Week in Hell, my review of what I got out of the week's show, which is not what you got out of it because I, I don't know about you, but the show never ends from my perspective. Every day I, I read uh, someone's writing, I think of questions, I can ask them, and not much else the entire day. Then the next morning I come in here and ask those same questions I've been thinking about for the past 23 hours. And then I do the same thing all over again. And lucky me, the topics are always hellish. So it's this week in hell, but it should be far more accurately called my week in hell, as your week in hell was likely very different. And we are playing our interview from December 2004 with Clayton Swisher, former State Department security officer and investigator who worked with the late Yasser Arafat at Camp David in 2000 during those talks and is author of the then-just-published book The Truth About Camp David, the untold story about the collapse of the Middle East peace process. Why are we sharing that interview on Tuesday's show when we spoke with Andrew Basevich about his article on shedding an obsolete past, Biden defers to the blob. Andrew writes of uh, one of the key negotiators at that Camp David summit, Dennis Ross, and in a none-too-glowing fashion. Well, back in 2004, Clayton had very similar criticisms and concerns about Dennis Ross, who appears to be a grade-A tool when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. As Andrew Basevich quotes Dennis Ross on President Biden's foreign policy so far, a policy that does not substantively change from the Trump presidency, Ross says, This is the classic example of where you have to balance your values and your interests. So let me translate. That means you have to choose between promoting democracy and pursuing U.S. business interests, and we all know which side U.S. foreign policy falls on, especially with people like Dennis Ross and, sadly, Joe Biden and every U.S. president ever. This interview really will blow your mind, uh, because at the time, here's someone who actually witnessed those famously failed Arab-Israeli peace talks, which the U.S. insisted was a had a very generous offer to the Palestinians, but in reality, as you will hear from Clayton, it was anything but generous. However, you can only hear all that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at the same place. We want to thank our newest subscribers on Patreon, Sean, Michael, Francisco, and Athena. We also got a guest suggestion sent to us at Chuck at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com this week from, hey, look who it is. It's Daphne, who ran the board on Mondays all of last year and is still stuck in her home country of Chile. Daphne says, hey, Chuck, writing as a listener, I don't know how to argue for this in a way that I don't sound like an overenthusiastic drunk friend. Last quarter, I took a class on feminist performance, so I ended up reading a decolonial feminism reader and met the writings of Linda Alcoff. After Aya Gruber on her book, The Fe uh, Feminist War on Crime, I strongly suggest that you interview Linda Alcoff, hopefully, hopefully for her book, Rape and Resistance, but truly any book would do. I've read that in the book, Future of Whiteness. 
Because she's a philosopher, my sense is that she takes themes of identity politics out of the media discourse and media strategies and parses them out with the calm of someone who thinks for a living. Some interesting things she tackles, I thought, were how to place relevance to experience beyond empiricism, how to desensationalize rape recounts, or how rape is tied to macro-political events such as the U.S.-Panama War, which is fascinating. It all sounds logical, but she writes in a way in which I always feel like I'm encountering an idea for the first time. I think her writing is creative, flexible, and responsible, and that mix feels so rare. Hope everything is okay. Daphne, everything is okay, I guess, as okay as we can be during a pandemic. Daphne, coincidentally, Daphne, Aya Gruber's book, Feminist War on Crime, that came up this week when Alex and I were sharing ideas for upcoming guests. The Aya's book was one of our favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2020. Uh, a new book is being published by Verso toward the end of April, and that's called the Feminist and the Sex Offender. And this is why I Gruber's book came up when Alex and I were talking about booking guests. So new books coming up by Verso, The Feminist and the Sex Offender by journalist Judith Levine and uh, Northwest, no, Northeastern Illinois University professor Erica R. Miners. And as Northeastern Illinois is directly west of us by three miles, I'm pretty sure we can get Erica on the show. As for Linda Elkoff, this August, Critique of Latin American Reason will be published, and Linda wrote the foreword to the book, which sounds fascinating. Thanks for the suggestion, Daphne, and we look forward to having you back here in the States and here in the studio, and possibly have Linda Elkoff on the show in August to talk about her the foreword that she's writing to Critique of Latin American Reason. You can email us your guest suggestions or topic ideas to chuck at thisishell.com, and if we have your suggested guest or topic on the show we will thank you personally on air coming up science says we must address climate change science also says if we're going to do that we have to do something about the current form and state of capitalism we'll also have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell what are you not paranoid enough about and announce this week's winner we might even tell you who's going to be on next week's show I don't know not too sure Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. If we only had a president who listened to scientists and believed in science, then we could finally have a president who would finally fight climate change. Joe Biden was supposed to be that president. And judging by everything he said in the first few weeks of his presidency, things were very promising. But there's <clears throat> the science that says the root cause of climate change is runaway economic growth. And that's the kind of science that seemingly no politician in the U.S. from either party is willing to believe. Returning to This Is Hell, writer Ben Ehrenreich wrote the New Republic article, We're Hurtling Toward Global Suicide. And Ben, by the way, congratulations on quite a cheery headline there. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be back. And in 2011, you uh, won the National Magazine Award for the Los Angeles Magazine article, the National Magazine Award for the Los Angeles Magazine article, "The End: What Really Happens After You Die." So, why such cheery writing, Ben? Oh, you know, I, I keep saying um, that at some point I'm going to um, really dig in and and write the book about puppies that I've always been wanting to write, um, but I keep 
getting distracted by you know horrible things maybe, <laughs> maybe, writing about those instead i got an idea maybe it should be a book book about puppies during climate change because that sounds like perfect for you ben is the author of yeah. desert notebooks a roadmap for the end of time which we discussed with ben on this is hell back in july of last year this is ben's fourth appearance on this is hell and you can find all of our conversations with him by searching on his last name aaron reich at this is hell.com you can follow him on twitter at ben aaron reich and find out more about ben at his website ben so you mentioned an article <coughs> published in the journal Frontiers in Conservation Science, despite its eye-catching title, underestimating the challenges of avoiding a ghastly future. The 17 scientists who co-wrote the article, the experts who peer-reviewed it, and the journal's editors did not consider the word ghastly too sensational, subjective, or value-laden to describe the future toward which our society is advancing with all the prudence and caution of a runaway locomotive. The article's message was simple. Everything must change. So Ben, if everything must change, things must be changing, but just not as fast as necessary, maybe? To what degree is anything change, any change happening right now? Well, you know, I mean, there's clearly some degree of change with Biden in the White House instead of Trump. But, um, you know, Biden has rhetorically um, embraced the language of climate emergency. Um, has rhetorically expressed some urgency, um, but is certainly not acting as if there's any urgency. Um, you know, I think, um, and I'm sure we'll go into this, you know, the, the piece is really about how the entire frame that mainstream climate advocacy puts on the issue um, more or less dooms us um, to at least two degrees of, um, of warming and prevents, um, you know, the, the possibility of real change, um, which would have to be social and economic change, um, in order to, uh, you know, prevent further warning. Um, but even within, um, that sort of fundamentally, I think, delusional, um, climate frame, um, Biden isn't doing nearly enough, um, you know, there was some excitement in the, the first few weeks, uh, you know, the, the day of his inauguration and the Wednesday after that, he rolled out all these executive orders. Um, and it felt like, uh, you know, there was finally some ambition, um, even if, you know, those orders didn't do quite as much as most of us would have wanted. Um, and then nothing happened and we were all supposed to wait for this uh, infrastructure project to be rolled out. And that started happening uh, yesterday. And I must say that, you know, even by um, those terms, which we'll discuss of, the, of, of mainstream climate advocacy, the infrastructure plan is like woefully inadequate. And to call it to call it tepid is uh, is an understatement. Um, so, yeah, compared to Trump, uh, when we were you know just absolutely racing headlong into the abyss, um, things have changed and for the better. And there is at least some awareness and some, um, you know, some focus. Um, but there is not, I would say, in, in this country, um, any sense of, uh, you know, um, any action that is appropriate to the, uh, you know, um, level of crisis that we're facing. And the framing that's often used, whether it's the Biden administration or administrations before uh, the Biden administration, it has always been trying to make it so we can actually create jobs and we can continue the economy as we have it now with climate change happening. So when it comes to that framing, you point out how the article from the Frontiers in Conservation Science, uh, it, it states that humanity, or some of us anyway, is, quote, running an ecological Ponzi scheme in which society or some sectors of it, quote, 
robs nature and future generations to pay for boosting incomes in the short term. Ben, do you think reacting to this Ponzi scheme of climate change as if it is a crime, would criminalizing climate change stop global warming? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always a little hesitant about criminalizing anything, um, given uh, the size of our, our prison population in the U.S. And then what would that mean exactly, right? I mean, who, who do you want to, what do you, you want to criminalize people who can't afford, uh, you know, to replace their, you know, their 20-year-old pickup truck? Um, or do you want to go after the, uh, you know, CEOs of, of the fossil fuel companies that are, um, you know, that have been lying to the public and, and jeopardizing the future of the, you know, not only our species but many other species now for uh, you know more than a generation um i'm i'm you know i'm generally uh i'd say a prison abolitionist but i'm pretty okay with uh um you know locking up some ceos <laughs> um, i'm looking forward to that too you also write that there was of course also a good deal of typical Democratic half-stepping in Biden's plan. He mentions a pause on drilling and not an outright ban. And why had and why had the administration quietly gone ahead and approved 31 new drilling permits anyway, you ask? Why no mention of fracking? Why not just shut down all the oil and gas pipelines that disserve the U.S. national interest, as the executive order put it, in exactly the same ways that Keystone XL did? So is the Biden climate change plan then to have climate change as a daily part of the federal bureaucracy while not ending the processes that actually contribute to climate change? Yeah, I mean, so far it seemed, you know, there was enormous amounts of, of pressure um, put on Biden um, from the left and from the, the climate movement um, during the primaries um, and during the campaign. Um, and Biden went from really not talking about climate um, to talking about it. And, you know, like, like I, to his credit, like this is not only better than Trump, what he's done, it's better than anything Obama did. Um, it's better than anything any president we've had yet has done, but it's still, uh, you know, embarrassingly tepid. Um, and, you know, it's proving as as the weeks pass to be sort of more tepid by the minute. Um, you know, the his um, I, I just read this morning um that the um the energy information administration of the u.s government had determined that biden's temporary moratorium on new oil and gas leasings will have no effect at all in the current year um and that uh, they forecast that in 2022 it will reduce oil and gas production uh oil production i suppose by less than 100,000 barrels a day um, which might sound like a lot unless you take into account that the u.s produces um more than 11 million barrels a day. Um, so, you know, there, there, he's been doing things um, that, that sound like he's doing things, but that have, you know, very little effect um, while talking up a plan, mainly in terms of its economic effects and in terms of uh, the amount of jobs he's going to create. He's much more comfortable talking about jobs than he is about climate. Um, and I think that's because taking on climate in any sincere way means um, making real changes to uh, the way our society functions um, that certainly our elites are not interested in making. And there's, there's a stress within the Biden administration of having a pragmatic response to climate change. Biden has said he wants to do everything through bipartisan, bipartisanism. Is pragmatic climate change, according to Biden, bipartisan climate change policy? And can 
the climate change can't climate change be addressed in a bipartisan manner? No, I, th- I think you know there, there's nothing at all in the political history of the United States of the last few decades to suggest that Republicans um, are willing to really do anything at all. Um, you know, some might be you know with the current balance of power in Congress, some might be convinced to uh, you know go over into a carbon tax. Um, scheme of some kind or another, uh, but even that, I'd, I'd really be surprised if they went for. And, and that, you know, I think um, in, in real terms, we'll, we'll we'll do next to nothing um, to limit emissions. Um, you know, essentially, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think uh, um, I, I think it's it's totally delusional. As is Biden's, uh, you know, talk about um, bipartisanship on pretty much every front, um, but. Um, I always think it's kind of funny when when people talk about a pragmatic approach to climate change, um, because usually what that means is that you know we'll work with the existing uh, you know um, loci of power who will not let us do anything because that's you know that's what pragmatism demands. So pragmatism ends ends up um, you know the pragmatic approach is the one that guarantees you know extinction um, for you know hundreds if not thousands of species and that threatens the lives of billions of, of human beings. You know, this is this is our pragmatic solution. So you explained the 17 scientists article was no surrender. Quote, it was meant as a kick in the ass, a reminder that our only chance is a thoroughgoing transformation, specifically as they write, fundamental changes to global capitalism, education and equality, which includes inter alia, that is among other things, the abolition of perpetual economic growth. So is the abolition of perpetual economic growth pragmatic? I think it's, it, it's really the only pragmatic thing. And I should add, you know, that, that, that the, the article that I highlighted in the beginning of um, the piece uh, that talked about the ghastly future that was signed by 17 scientists, this is one of, of, of many articles. Um, you know, I also mentioned uh, in 2019, um, scientists published a warning of climate emergency um, which one was published, I think garnished more than 11,000 signatures. Since then, it's garnished more than 13,000 signatures, all of them, uh, you know, scientists, not not just, you know, uh, it's not somebody standing in front of uh, Walmart taking signatures, but these are, you know, scientists who know something about these subjects, um, which also, uh, you know, insisted on a shift away from GDP growth as one of the only ways of getting us out of this crisis. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it's... You know, if one removes the blinkers um, that the uh, certainly that every economics department in this country puts on one, um, and that the extremely limited um, field of political discourse in this country puts on one, um, it becomes like you know quite patently obvious um, that uh, not only the climate crisis. Um, but the extinction crisis and the biodiversity crisis and the crisis facing the oceans and, uh, you know, not to mention various other uh, simply human um, crises um, are um, coeval with the development of industrial capitalism. Um, you know, that, that human beings lived on the planet for 300,000 odd years um, and certainly, uh, you know, humans in various places did, uh, you know, alter their environments. It's one of the things that humans do. We're a bit like ants or prairie dogs. Um, but we did not ever um, do so in a way that threatened 
the future of the species um, or the, from the future of so many other species. Um, and that, you know, this is a, uh, this is not just a, um, a coincidence um, that we are talking about a system um, that regards the entire planet, um, you know, the planet, its atmosphere, uh, the minerals beneath it, the oceans, all of the life on in the oceans, all of the life on the land um, as potential commodities, um, you know, as resources uh, that must be exploited um, and um, in order to raise capital for the exploitation of uh, further resources and envisions this kind of infinite chain um, of um, churning uh, the material world and the immaterial world into commodities, which can uh, then be, you know, um, the the source of further growth. Um, and behind it all is I, what I think of as, as a really a, an entirely religious notion um, that this can go on forever. Um, you know, in the piece, I compare it to a perpetual growth, a, a, a perpetual motion machine. Um, you know, this idea that, that we can keep on eating and eating and eating and eating um, and never run out. Um, and I think it's been painfully clear uh, in the last half century, more than the last half century, um, but especially in the last two, three decades, um, that this is, this is not working out. Um, it's not working out for human beings. It's not working out for most of the other species with which we share the planet. Um, and, you know, I think there are plenty of reasons, uh, to, um, passionately oppose the relations imposed upon us by capitalism before we realized that it was actually destroying, um, you know, our biological basis on the planet. Um, and, uh, now we can, we can add a, a pretty major one to them. Prior to the presidential election on a lot of lawns and up here on the northwest side of uh, far north side of Chicago, you saw a lot of Biden Harris signs. Then next to them would be a sign that had a lot of phrases on it, like Black Lives Matter. And one of the phrases was science is real. There is climate change denialism and there are those fighting to stop climate change who purport to believe that science is real. To what extent do those who fight climate change have any denialism that fundamental changes must be made to global capitalism? As argued by scientists, does the Democratic Party have a denialism toward what science says about capitalism? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I have my own skepticism about um, this sort of religion around science, this notion science is real, this notion that the, that, that you know, that science can ever remain completely uh, divorced um, from politics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what I want to do in this piece was to say, you know, just to kind of put that skepticism aside for a minute and say, okay, well, if we actually listen to, um, you know, if we take this strictly empiricist view um, and we um, believe in a, in a really simple way that, that what the scientists are saying, it's what we have to do as a um, society, um, is current climate advocacy living, you know, in line with that? Um, and and the I think the pretty obvious answer is no. You know, I may, I've been covering climate for a while. Um, I went last year to the uh, um, the COP meeting in was it last year or the year before? Time has uh, obviously done some strange things recently. 
um, it was 2019, um, in, in Madrid, um, and, you know, the big international, um, you know, climate meeting and was stunned there and in domestic circles at the degree to which, uh, certain things are simply not discussed. Um, and the degree to which, um, the conversation is limited, um, to certain extremely narrow terms, um, and can only really take place within the, um, parameters of what is called green growth, um, which is something I talked about at, at, at some length in the piece. And we can go into that if you like. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But you also write, it's as if our economic system and the politics it breeds will not allow us to diverge from the straight path to self-obliteration. To what degree are we choosing self-obliteration? Well, you know, on an individual level, I think most of us don't have much choice. You know, um, you know, you, you find a job uh, that will support you and support your family. And, uh, you know, it might be with a company that does uh, awful things. It's the only job you can find. And you may have to, um, you know, drive uh, an hour every morning to get there and may not be able to afford a nice Tesla. Uh, you know, um, there's a million ways in which this system locks us in um, to behaviors that are, you know, killing us and killing people all around the planet, um, where, you know, individual choice has, has very little to do with it. Um, but I think when we get to the level of, uh, you know, policymakers, um, at a national level, um, when we get to the level of the people who are determining the shape of the discourse, whether it's the big private NGOs or institutions, um, you know, from the World Bank to uh, you know to the UN, um, then yeah, then then there then then there's some real uh, choices and and I think direct responsibility. You write the market's grip on the political imagination so effectively blinds us to alternatives that we are unable fully to grasp that this is the basic script that the new administration is following. Even the Green New Deal does not substan substantively diverge from that script. How does the Green New Deal not substan substantively diverge from the market solution to climate change? I, you know, I think the Green New Deal um, and, and not just the Green New Deal, but with something called the Thrive Agenda, which has uh, been... been created by a lot of the groups that, that had uh, pushed for the Green New Deal, they kind of present the, the best and most progressive version of this notion of green growth, right? So, you know, we want green jobs, we want, um, you know, we want uh, a transition away from fossil fuels to um, sustainable sources of energy, um, but we also want environmental justice, and we want a living wage, and we want housing for all, and we want universal health care. You know, so they, I think, quite correctly, um, and in many ways excitingly, you know, use the climate crisis as a pivot um, for broader social and economic change, necessary, you know, urgently necessary social and economic change. Um, and I think that's all good. Um, I think the problem is that there is no real reckoning with the unfortunate fact um, that this kind of transition is not 
going to be possible without some more fundamental economic um, transformation, um, which is to say that uh, the you know the fundamental basis uh, for for green growth, the idea that you can kind of take our existing fossil fuel based um, economy and prop it up, um, shift it over uh, to a new foundation on um, you know on renewable energies um, that does not appear to be possible. Um, and I'm not just saying this as a skeptic. I mean, there's um, plenty of, of literature suggesting this. Um, and so the, the Green New Deal also, it, do, it does like the very nice progressive version of, hey, we're gonna create lots of jobs. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna use this crisis to um, instill all these forms of, of, of social justice, which we have desperately needed for so long. Um, but it's still not reckoning, I think, with uh, with the fundamental problems. So is green growth then climate change neoliberalism, that there is no alternative to fighting climate change other than to financially profit while doing so? Um, I'm not sure if it's a... Uh... I, I mean, I, I think something like the Green New Deal pushes us away from a, a neoliberal frame sufficiently to, that I don't know if it makes sense to, to talk about that word in that context. Certainly, I think in in the the Biden context uh, and the way most countries and um, in you know throughout the world are approaching this, uh, neoliberalism still certainly does apply. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, green growth tries to preserve uh, the basic dogma of growth um despite uh you know so, so you know I, I was talking about earlier about um you know the, these last couple hundred years having established right that capitalism is 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 has been absolutely devastating um to the species to other species to the planet etc right um and green growth seems to me as a, a way to try to keep this religion going even when everybody's lost faith you know um it's sort of like uh um, you know, one of the uh, apocalyptic cults of the 19th century that predicts that the world is going to end on you know, April 24th, and then the world doesn't end on April 24th. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we meant next year in May. Um, you know, green growth, I think, is in the same way trying to preserve the, these absolutely shaky foundations um, by just moving them a few yards over. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think... Uh, I guess the, the the term we should probably end up um, discussing is when you it's rare you know this is, green growth is is simply the assumption of most climate advocates um, it's not analyzed it's not discussed it's not questioned um, I think by writing this article I probably annoyed um, a lot of people who don't want to uh, think about these things, mainly because they're struggling to, you know, fight within the parameters of a, of a system that's already difficult enough. Um, but I think it is, you know, crucially important that we do pause and question these things. Um, and, you know, the main mechanism, if you wonder how green growth is going to happen, you start digging around in the literature, um, the, the mechanism that is mentioned is, the word is decoupling, right? Um, like, you know, like separating a train from one engine that's taking you to a wrong place uh, and moving it, you know, recoupling it to another engine, which will, instead of spitting out diesel fuel, you know, just be working on solar and take us into, into green flower filled pastures. 
Um, and the problem is that there is no evidence that decoupling is happening or has happened anywhere in, a, in any real sense. Um, and most of the evidence uh, for decoupling is what's called relative decoupling, which basically means uh, when countries like, uh, you know, um, wealthy countries like the within the European Union, for instance, um, have achieved some level of, of relative decoupling um, and continue to have, you know, sturdy GDP growth, even as they no longer rely heavily on, on fossil fuels, right, or as heavily on fossil fuels. Um, and this has mainly happened um, because they have, their economies are no longer based on manufacturing in the way they were 30 and 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, and most of the manufacturing of the commodities that they consume has been pushed to countries in the global south, to China, um, to Latin America, uh, to Southeast Asia. Um, so all of the dirty parts of their economy have simply moved elsewhere, right? Um, and they get to keep the clean part. So that's one kind of decoupling. That's the that's the kind we actually get to, that we actually do on the regular. And all it really, you know, proves is that the global economy, you know, still functions on a on a colonial basis. Um, but the kind of absolute decoupling, um, where GDP growth continues. Um, and fossil fuel fuel use falls off. That has not happened anywhere. Um, and the um, scholarly literature I've read um, has, you know, shown hundreds of studies, um, which all together fail to show that that kind of absolute decoupling has occurred or is even possible to the degree that would be necessary for green growth not to be, a, you know, a pretty fantasy. You mentioned how there is this reliance on technology to remove uh, carbon from the atmosphere after the fact within the fight uh, within the plans to fight climate change. But you write that the technology in question is at this point largely speculative. To what extent is the Biden policy on climate change and the global fight against climate change dependent upon fantasy technology that does not exist? Because back in 2019, I think it was 2019, I'm having the same problems with time as you are, uh, we talked to Christian Parenti, and he told us that there are a lot of, a lot of the technologies actually do exist. It's just the ability to upscale in order to have a real impact on the environment and have a real impact on climate change doesn't yet exist. So to what extent does Biden, to what extent does the world's fight against climate change depend upon fantasy technology that has yet to be invented? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's, if, if you want to get some, um, you know, good research grant money, uh, going for decarbonization technology is a pretty good way to do it. Um, you know, there's tons of money being pumped out there to um, find new technologies that can remove carbon from the air in one way or another. Um, and but yeah, the problem is that there this is all of it is untested on anything close to the scale necessary because this stuff would have to be um, deployed at a at a massive scale. Um, I I reviewed uh, a few weeks ago um, Elizabeth Colbert's new book uh, Under a White Sky, um, which talks about some of this in, in some real depth. And and the stuff about geoengineering is is like absolutely disturbing. Um, you know that. Um, one of the main methods of geoengineering, which would be to, you know, basically spray reflective particles of one kind or another 
um, into the stratosphere to uh, reflect the sun's energy back um, and reverse global warming, um, you know, would would require uh, you know thousands and thousands of flights by these these you know, giant airplanes, which would be spraying uh, these particles, which might go, you know, which might also cause all these awful you know droughts and a million other horrific effects and acid rain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and every year that, that that we do it, we would have to increase it, right? Because we would still be producing just as much carbon emissions. Um, so we'd have to, it, it would just get us stuck in in this, you know, nightmare scenario. We'd have to be producing more and more of this, you know, untested, extremely expensive technology. And if we ever stopped it, the, the metaphor that she uses uh, is pretty visceral. It would be like opening an oven door. You know, that if there was a war, if there was uh, some kind of disaster, and we couldn't keep these flights going, then all that heating that we had managed to reflect back um, would suddenly, boom, you know, be upon us very instantly. Um, and the, you know, the fact is that in in the net zero calculations um, that governments and corporations are making, um, and in most of the scenarios um, that international um, climate organizations use to try to figure out, you know, what we'd have to do to stay at a, um, you know, some not catastrophic degree of warming, which, you know, means for the most part, keeping it below 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, rely on technology that has not yet been deployed or tested and that in real terms does not exist. Um, so, you know, this is one of the things that, like, as I read more and thought about it was was just stunning to me that the entire scheme um that most climate advocates and climate advocates are people who really care about this I'm not, not, these are not evil people right these are, these are people who are um trying hard um but the scheme that most people um have come up with is more willing to rely on technology that is now that does not now exist um, and on a transition um, that may not be possible um, than they are to even entertain the idea of meaningful social and economic change. Um, that is the one thing that no one is willing to talk about, um, that we may actually have to change our economy in, in really fundamental you mentioned, mentioned Elizabeth Colbert. We had her on the show to talk about her book, The Sixth Extinction. If people want to hear that interview, they can search on her last name, K-O-L-B-E-R-T. So is her new book out already, or did you review it before it was released? I think it's out. I think it's out in the last couple of weeks, yeah. Yeah, we got to get her on the show. I know that her uh, brother is a big listener of our show. You write that last year, GDP growth in the United States during the pandemic, obviously, fell 3.5%. Emissions tumbled, too. The only other time in the last three decades that they have dropped significantly was not coincidentally also the last time the economy contracted. But it's guided with intent. If it's guided with intent, the cessation of endless growth does not have to mean impoverishment. Doesn't less growth mean less money, less profits, and that means more impoverishment? Can an economy not grow at the same pace and not lead to more po uh, poverty? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, the fixation on growth, um, which is, you know, 
a, an absolutely religious belief, I think, among uh, you know most world leaders and policymakers and, and elite circles, um, is quite new. I mean, this goes back to the uh, you know late '40s, early '50s. This is a, a post-war trend, even in mainstream capitalist economics. Um, the belief that economies must grow. This is this is you know. Um, even in, in classical economics, that didn't have uh, this this insistence on um, on economic growth in the same way uh, that, that neoliberal economics does. Um, and I, you know, I think it's easy to prove wrong uh, by um, recalling that um, you know in the U.S. GDP growth um, has been quite steady um, with with a couple of tiny blips um, you know since the early 1970s um, uh, you know that 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 curve goes straight up um, at the same time real wages um, have gone straight down um, and poverty has gone up um, and uh, life expectancy has gone down and uh, child mortality has gone up um, you know so so as as growth um, you know, growth does not track uh, with every other factor which we associate with with a um, you know lives worth living, right? Um, we work more for less money, um, are in in more polluted environments, um, under under more forms of stress. Um, even as GDP growth um, has been going up and up and up for decades. Now, of course, um, quality of life has improved drastically for some people. Um, and what we've seen over that period of sustained GDP growth is uh, the increasing concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands. Um, and those, those few people um, who have profited enorm enormously from um, the economic changes of the, of the last few decades um, are intent on preserving um, their wealth, uh, even if it means the, um, you know, the death of billions at this point. I think that's very clear, um, and uh, you know, I think one of the a lot of this is is pretty uh, depressing, we should say. But something that actually kind of gave me some some real hope in um, working on this piece was coming across uh, some numbers which aren't actually you know they're not new to me. I just hadn't really quite thought about them in this context. Um, that one figure which I cite in the piece from a recent Oxfam um, analysis, which found that the richest 1% of the world's population produce 100 times more emissions than the poorest half of the planet's population. You know, some of your listeners may already um, be aware of that one. Um, another from uh, the UN Environment Program, not by any means a radical Marxist sect, um, from their last emissions gap report. Uh, which found that if the richest 1% of the planet's population uh, reduced their current emissions by a factor of 30, the poorest 50% could increase their emissions by a factor of three. Um, you know, and we're talking about the, the richest 1%, we're talking about billionaires. And if their consumption goes down by a factor of 30, they're still going to be living a hell of a lot better than almost all of the rest of us are. Um, and, you know, the reason this gave me hope is, is it, when you start to think in these terms and when you start to think about climate change um, in terms of the existing global inequities, 
um, then it becomes really clear that you know if if you if you if you take for granted the world that we have and the and the social and economic relationships that we have in the world, then climate change is impossible. It's an impossible thing to fix, right? If we have to keep having GDP growth, if we have to keep feeding this machine, um, then this it does appear like there's nothing we can do, um, and we're just going to have to gamble on all of these, uh, you know absolutely speculative uh, technologies um, and hope that they will will save the day. Um, but if we consider that societies can change and do change and that mass movements have over the last two centuries pushed societies in completely different directions than the ones they were set on, um, then something else takes shape. Um, and it's the possibility of um, what would have to be really radical social change, um, but radical social change that would not only um, reverse the you know extraordinary inequities and injustices of the current system, but that would take us off of this uh, you know race towards suicide um, that the species is not engaged in, but that that one percent of the species is dragging us all along into. You also mentioned net zero, and I want to make sure that people understand this. You write a version of the same wager animates the Biden uh, climate plan, which as Canada, the European Union, the UK and South Korea all have com commits to net zero emissions no later than 2050. China plans to reach the same goal by 2060. But you add net zero is a slippery notion. It does not mean zero at all. So what does net zero mean if it doesn't mean zero? You know, net zero is, um, I mean, there's nothing that politicians uh, like better than to promise um, that things will reach some amorphous goal um, 30 years from now, right? You know, Joe Biden will be long dead by 2050. Um, you know, most of the people in, who are currently in Congress will be dead by 2050. Um, so net zero goals are really popular among politicians. They're also popular for among uh, you know corporate um, leaders, all the all most of the big fossil fuel companies um, and and companies engaged in in fossil fuel intense uh, you know airlines, uh, shipping companies, etc., have been releasing their net zero plans. Um, net zero just means that they're going to find a way um, and are finding a way to balance um, their emissions um, with some kind of offsets. Um, so if, you know, if carbon emission, emissions are in the, um, the positive column, they have to find something else in the negative, they, you know, that maybe they can reduce those emissions somewhat, but if they can't reduce them all the way, they're going to find something to offset them to put in the negative column. Um, for most corporations, um, that has meant committing to various kinds of offsets, which often means, you know, we're planting trees, we're going to plant lots of trees. Um, and those tree plantations are going to allow us to keep, uh, you know, um, spitting out carbon because you can't have a, uh, you know, a shipping company that relies on diesel engines or a, uh, um, an airline that relies on jet fuel um, without spitting out more emissions, right? So we're just going to keep planting trees. Um, and uh, I, one number that, uh, that really struck me was that um, Action Aid, an NGO, put out a, a study on net zero um, commitments, which found that in order to satisfy all of the net zero um, 
commitments made by companies and governments, we would need another planet to accommodate all of the trees, right? Um, and, and trees sound great, and I'm all for reforestation. Um, but a lot of these plans actually just involve tree plantations, right? Um, and what that generally means is, would have to mean, um, because we only have so much land mass on the planet, um, would be taking land that is currently being put to other use because you can't take wild land and plant trees on it. Already has trees, right? Um, and um, and and planting trees, and that would inevitably mean that that land that is currently being used to produce food for poor people um, would be uh, used to create these these tree plantations. Um, and tree and tree plantations, are, you know, this is a um, not a sustainable. Um, this, this doesn't necessarily mean forests. This means uh, monoculture. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think there is a, um, you know, uh, a great deal of deceit um, in a lot of those net zero plants, um, and some of them, you know, the deceit may not be. Uh, I, I think there's a among people who work on this kind of policy, there's a, there's a great belief in this stuff. Um, there's a, the people's faith in technology is is very very powerful. Um, so in, in some cases, it's not so much to see this delusion. Um, but I think when, uh, you know, when we're talking about BP or Shell um, or Mayersk or, or American Airlines, uh, the deceit is, is, is pretty straightforward. We have been speaking with writer Ben Ehrenreich, who wrote the New Republic article, We're Hurtling Toward Global Suicide. You can follow Ben on Twitter, at Ben Ehrenreich, and you can find out more about him at his website, benehrenreich.net. One last question for you, Ben, and as always, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that the white supremacy that threatens to tear the country down while strangling the rest of the globe has proved inseparable from an ecocidal urge to dominate all forms of planetary life. W.E.B. Du Bois saw it clearly 100 years ago, saying whiteness is the ownership of the earth forever and ever. It must be confronted head-on, you add. So how much is white supremacy an obstacle to fighting climate change? How much is white supremacy a contributor to climate change? Oh, enormously. Um you know, I, I think um, one book that I, I would uh, uh, recommend, I'm great, I'm going to blank on the title to it, um, Amitav Ghosh's book on, on climate change uh, um, is, is, is terrific because one of the things that he does extremely well is um, makes the argument that the, that the problem is not simply capitalism, um, but the colonial relations that were established um, over the last uh, few centuries. That, you know, climate change is, can never be boiled down to a single country, a single place, right? This is, this is the climate belongs to the entire planet. Um, and what we have seen is um, a few countries, mainly the US and the UK, um, and a few other countries, um, profiting enormously um, off of uh, industrialization um, while the rest of the planet um, is suffering the uh, impacts of climate change. And those profits weren't, they weren't just innocent profits of, um, you know, like the, the wonderful fruit of industry, right? I mean, those profits also depended on a racialized global order in which uh, resources were extracted um, from Africa, um, from Latin America, from um, Asia and the global south, 
um, in order to create riches uh, for a few West, rich white Western European countries. Um, so yeah, I, th I think white supremacy and uh, racial injustice are, are absolutely central to how this problem was created. Um, and dealing with them is ab must be absolutely central to uh, dealing with getting us out of this mess. Ben, a pleasure talking to you again. Really great to have you back on the show. What are you working on right now? Are you working on a new book? I'm I'm working on working on a new book. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like most of us, I think the uh, the the pandemic has uh, has thrown me for a few loops, um, but I'm uh, I'm um, dancing as fast as I can. Vaccinated? Not yet. Um, soon, I hope. Congratulations, you know, by the way. Thank you. Uh, you know, you are a member of the media, so that qualifies in the state of Illinois. If you want to come over here for a while. I might have to uh, risk my life and come to Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, Ben. It's really great to hear from you. Thanks a lot, Chuck. It's always a pleasure. Take care. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from hell is, what are you not paranoid enough about? What are you not paranoid enough about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Don't forget, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support as we are completely listener-supported. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Uh, probably out of time already, but... Richard, please share with us the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Yeah, so we have some from uh, DM, Twitter, ETC, ETC. <laughs> from Josh, he says, the prospects for global thermonuclear war. <laughs> that is something to be paranoid about. Another one from Neil C. Essential really means disposable. <laughs> you know, I have a like a, a float, like a raft. My sister does. And it says Pretty on the side time. of it, thermonuclear device <laughs> i have never figured out why that's on that float no no idea whatsoever mm. very curious so, so what are people not paranoid enough about richard flying needle says er the white man <laughs> and uh let's see hypocrite reader says whatever just made my cat run out of the room in terror and that's a ghost by the way in case you don't know why your cat ran out of the room Jen says, the meaning of the talking baby nightmares I keep having. <laughs> I do like talking baby nightmares from Jen. And let's see here. Uh, Bradley A. says, will the references I put on my resume say good things about me, or will they say the truth? <laughs> and then he goes into a conversation with somebody who I think he's trying to get a job with. And he's asking her, "So what's the deal? Are you gonna which one are you gonna listen to? Skip those replies." But yes. what a weird conversation that turned into. Yes. And then uh, Peter J says that every time I turn around, there are things <laughs> behind me. <laughs> That's something to be paranoid of. 
And that's all we have. The answers I liked most were, I did like hypocrite readers, whatever just made my cat run out of the room in terror. That was really good. I did like Jen's asking, what's with these uh, talking baby nightmares? That's very interesting. Adam saying my general paranoia level. Martin saying the Jewish space lasers, probably because I'm Jewish and I own the space lasers in the mainstream media and Hollywood and the Federal Reserve. Jeff saying my demon on my butt. <laughs> Uh, Jeff saying uh, Jeff C saying hand sanitizer effects on the environment and good bacteria. Fabio saying Chuck's health. I'm very glad that he's concerned about that. Pete saying podcasts. Mike saying bipartisanship. Greg saying the causal link between blindness, masturbation, and God's all-seeing eye. What are you not paranoid enough about? Mark said Q anonymous alcoholics, which is great. Victor saying sleeping pills. Laddie saying mindfulness. Sean saying water access. You know what? I'm going to go with Sean and water access because he answered in a perfectly timely fashion while we were having a discussion on water affordability. So that makes this week's winner of the question from hell, what are you not paranoid enough about? Sean saying water access. Sean M. All you have to do is send us your mailing address and tell us which piece of merchandise you would like that you can find it at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we'll have it in the mail to you shortly. As far as me, what am I not paranoid enough about? I'm exactly paranoid enough about everything. So I am just paranoid enough, except maybe my paranoia of being constantly paranoid. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. And this week's hangover cure is watermelon. Thanks to this week's guests, including Davarian L. Baldwin, author of In the Shadows of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Follow Davarian on Twitter at Davarian Baldwin. And if you are a Northwestern University student... If you're a University of Chicago student, if you're a student anywhere, but especially at those two campuses, because what they're going through right now, you definitely should listen to that interview. Also, thanks to author and historian Andrew Basevich, who wrote the article on shedding an obsolete past. Biden defers to the blob. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Basevich. Thanks to yesterday's guest, ACLU journalist Kurt Guyette, who posted the article, Water Affordability, a Detroit panel discussion looks at the issues, many moving parts, as the specter of shutoffs again looms. Follow Kurt on Twitter at Kurt Guyette, that's G-U-Y-E-T-T-E. And thanks to today's guest, writer, anti-fascist, anti-racist, Ben Ehrenreich, wrote the New Republic article, We're Hurtling Toward Global Suicide. Follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Ehrenreich. Find out more about Ben at BenEhrenreich.net. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at Patreon.com slash This Is Hell when we will be playing our December 2004 interview with Clayton Swisher, a former State Department security officer and investigator who worked with the late Yasser Arafat at Camp David in 2000 and is author of the then-just-published book, The Truth About Camp David, the untold story about the collapse of the Middle East peace process, and thanks to Cherish, or Cher yes, Cherish, for going to thisishell.com and showing your appreciation for the show by clicking on support. Thanks, Cherish. Richard, do we have any clue as to who is going to be on next week's show? We do not. It'll be a surprise. <laughs> you really know how to tease next week's show. 
Oh, thank you, Richard, for producing. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. Thanks to Ben Ehrenreich for being on today's show. Thanks to you for listening. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me of profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Selling disaster to capitalism. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. The object of any capitalist enterprise seems to be to contrive through law or violence to control the greatest amount of resources possible and to increase such control even beyond time and the possible. There is no point at which the capitalist enterprise is programmed to decide enough is enough. The resources it seeks to command include what we normally think of as wealth or capital, such as raw materials, space, time, and money, as well as physical human beings, where they are in space, and how they exert their energy at any given time, but also including their ineffable attributes, loyalty, passion, purpose, wishes, sexual feelings, determination, perseverance, language, ignorance, knowledge, imagination, anxiety, pettiness, preference, and any number of other intangible energies to which a name may or may not be attached. Does capitalism succeed in its quest for control? Yes, it does. What can put the brakes on its quest? Unions the power of which has been waning since and partially because of the Reagan administration, government, which has been known to vacillate between bowing to the influence of the people and to that of capital, with capital in the excessively ascendant currently, and natural forces, though any limit imposed by so-called nature, is often turned by capital into yet another opportunity or public excuse to exert other kinds of control. All limits are just more business opportunities. Is the world crumbling due to fossil fuel emissions? Here's a battery! The concerned consumer never sees the emissions produced during lithium extraction, battery manufacture, and generating the electricity used to charge the batteries, all of which activities occur off-camera. Are unions forcing you to raise wages? There's a company you can hire to undermine labor solidarity. There are all kinds of lobbyists hired to convince governments to hire the capitalists to remove obstacles to capitalism, and think tanks to advise governments to listen to those lobbyists. It's big business removing obstacles to business, and everyone wants in on that gravy train. It's a viciously circular feeding frenzy, and the great masses of us outside of uber wealth are the bait ball. The ability to profit from our emotions, both petty and grand, and the ability to turn catastrophe and human misery into investment opportunities seem to be the two aspects of capitalism really coming to the fore, converging as we rapidly approach the end of civilization. The triumph of Donald Trump in the 2016 election may be the apotheosis of that conversion. After that, 
We all must explode, individually and collectively, into sparkly combusting unicorn farts. There's nowhere else to go. There's your end of history, Francis Fukuyama. Like a stone in the urethra of human progress, nothing more can issue forth. Dump is that blockage. The nephrolithiasis of history. It's been said that capitalism can't exist without democracy. Yet it's in the self-destructive and contradictory nature of capitalism to require democracy while simultaneously striving to destroy it. It also requires workers, while at the same time trying to destroy them. No, maybe that's an exaggeration. Capitalism merely tries to train them to live without food, shelter, education, health care, community, and humanity. It requires nature to exist, but at the same time destroys it. Were these forces, capitalism and democracy, in some kind of balance, it might not be necessary to free ourselves from capitalism, but because capitalism desires have superseded those of any other organism, including the planet itself, it's either free ourselves or perish. But maybe there's another way. There's another notable instant when capitalism's twin engines of exploitation of catastrophe and its manipulation of desire and imagination converged in an example of entrepreneurial hubris worthy of a chef's kiss. There are two documentaries about it currently available, one on Hulu and one on Netflix, and I strongly urge you to watch at least one of them. Gather your friends around, lay in a supply of tortilla chips and a huge trough of seven-layer schadenfreude, and watch the tale of Firefly festival unfold. The Elevator Pitch. A fake wunderkind entrepreneur skating on his success of rounding up investors and customers for his VIP credit card and insider consumer app that never delivered on its promises sells VIP tickets for thousands of dollars to a luxury music festival that never delivers on its promises leaving the suckers who paid thousands for a millionaire with bad musical taste experience stranded all night in wet FEMA tents on a rocky island with no music and tacky lunch meat sandwiches. I think we've found the weakness of capitalism. It believes its own grandiose bullshit. So here's what we do. Sell ridiculously expensive tickets to a luxury sex planet and pitch that there's going to be an awards night, something that will appeal to the most vile capitalists. The tickets must be expensive enough to prevent some non-hubristic, non-rich person from winning one in an office raffle as one dude did or supposedly did in the case of Firefest. He was apparently the only one who got his money's worth. Watching rich people freak out because their luggage was being handled roughly, or they were slightly dehydrated? Oh, it was like chicken soup for my middle-class soul. Best weekend of my life, he is supposed to have reported. No, we don't want someone with such small dreams on our luxury sex planet and business achievement and nation rapist awards night voyage. Only those with money to burn on completely stupid self-congratulatory crap are allowed, because when they get off the spaceship, they'll realize... Get this, they've landed on Venus. The only thing to eat is volcanic rock. The temperature is a balmy 800 degrees. The only natural hot springs is full of sulfuric acid. And the awards are cheaply made. We want something we can tempt ancient banana slug walrus hybrid Henry Kissinger to shell out for. A destination event that will cause the wattles of the Koch brothers to tremble at the thought of. One that will draw overvalued thought leaders, sultans, CEOs, top social media influencers, and branding champions alike to their extraterrestrial deaths. We'll even hire Elon Musk to build the spaceship. Of course he'll want to go, and he can even bring his car. Then we can divide up the wealth they leave behind on Earth. 
and maybe mitigate the environmental damage we've been forced to collaborate in perpetrating. Using your opponent's grotesquely abusive power against him, that is the beauty of it. Imagine if we could get rid of those controlling pests who feel entitled to try to commandeer anything and everything by offering them the recognition they feel they deserve for being avaricious, power-mad, egomaniacal control freaks. And that's just one idea I have for how to take back our planet. It's called Poetic Celestial Justice, and I've invented an app that goes with it. It's going to make me a zillion bucks. This has been the moment of truth. Yeah, good day. Happy belated New Year, Jeffy. Oh, same to you, Chuck, and I'm very sorry to hear about your uh, invalid condition. Yeah, I am very sorry about that, too. Man, God, I hate back pain. I really. Oh, 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 oh. Really. really the only thing worse, I don't know, tooth pain is pretty awful. Uh, and, uh, oh, my God. Foot pain, like when you can't even walk because your feet. Oh are, yeah. Oh. Oh, oh, testicle pain. You know what? I can deal with that. I've what about with... urethra pain? <laughs> Talk <laughs> about your own ethra pain. Okay? What about butt? No. All right. Listen, Chuck. Yes. I do have a, a self care suggestion, but it's not a joke. All right. Let's hear. Joke, it. Chuck. Let's hear. Go it. upside down. Oh. My. Uh, how can I describe this person? Um, my medical consultant has suggested mm-hmm. that. Oh, good. All right. My medical consultant also has access to great weed. That sounds great. You might find yourself upside down just by accident. <laughs> smoking All right, Jeffy, until next time. Okay. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Alex. Happy New Year, Leo. Is Leo there? No. Okay. Stay, happy. stay beautiful. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.